Good morning, good morning. <laughs> I feel like this is an every week thing for me. Good morning, good morning, everyone. There we go. Excellent. Hey, turn to somebody and um, would you just look at them and see who's the first one to smile? And then, and then I want you to do is turn to, the, to somebody else and go, I'm just really glad you're here today. Can you just say that? Just with sincere enthusiasm. Hopefully you're sincere. Well, my name, my name is Kevin, and I am the other pastor on staff here at Finding Life Church. And, and I don't know when that age hits where you don't start using the language like bust out your handout or malo. <laughs> yeah. So my wife and I um, have just thoroughly enjoyed Omaha, getting to know um, just everything that it has to offer. We love um, the different restaurants. That's something that I love to do. The Dairy Chef near Elkhorn. So come on, yeah, exactly. Some good stuff there. And uh, I mean, we just love the different experiences. Uh, you don't just have a Menards. You have a Home Depot and a Lowe's. I mean, wow. This is good for me. And uh, yesterday, my wife and I were able to experience another new experience. I've said experience now multiple times. Just a great experience, just a pleasurable experience. Uh, Vala's Pumpkin Patch. Never done that in my however old I am years. And it was just incredible. Uh, we were just like, oh my goodness, and then there was food, and then that's all we could see was food, and so we, I mean, there was a uh, big old honking turkey leg, and barbecue pork on a potato, and a roasted ear of corn, and donuts, and, um, oh, we didn't have that, <laughs> donuts, I mean, this is all the things that we ate, this is just what we ate, <laughs> no, uh, pie, and that was just my wife. Not true, not true, not true. But it was a ton of fun, and um, we just got to spend some time with some friends and uh, by a fire pit and watching their kids go crazy. And um, yeah, it made me wish I was young again. But anyway, that was just a ton of fun. All right, so um, this whole experience that my wife and I had yesterday all made possible, right, because of this holiday that's coming at the end of October uh, this thing, little thing called Halloween, and um, it's um, just a lot of fun, right? A lot of fun. So it got me thinking about, in history, and that's why I asked you to ask the question, it got me thinking about, well, what else has happened that was significant on October 31st in whatever year? And so I went to a particular website, and I don't know if it's reputable or not, but we're just going to go with it like it is. Okay, just, you with me on that? All right, good, all right. So here's the deal. On October 31st, in 2015, what was significant on that day? Anybody know? I mean, this is pretty cool. Right? The, the Ruby World Cup final. New Zealand's team defeated the Australia's Wallabies, 
That happened until the right? That's significant, right? In 1992, Don Keller made his 18,000th skydive. That, to me, is significant. In 1892, on October 31st, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle published what? The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, exactly. 1756, Giacomo Castanova. <laughs> Escapes from prison in Venice by climbing on the roof. In 1541, on October 31st, Michelangelo finishes painting The Last Judgment in the Sistine Chapel. And then according to um, Nehemiah chapter 9 in the New Living Translation, in 444, 445 B.C., Ezra, the prophet, reads, or Ezra, the scribe, reads the book of the law to the Israelites in Jerusalem. Now, why I'm saying all that is because there's something else that happened 500 years ago um, in the year 1517 that is very, very significant. There was a man that was struggling with the church at Rome. And the things that were happening, there was some corruption that was going on. Um, They were selling off indulgences to pay for a facility or whatever it might be. And that's basically what it is, is just asking money for forgiveness of sins. And then um, you could buy your way into a position in the church. And there was other things. They were keeping the Bible in Latin so that those that um, were poor were not able to read it for themselves, and, and on and on and on and go. And finally, there was just that one instance where um, the higher-ups decided that they were gonna, needed to sell more indulgences to pay for this massive cathedral, and it just became too much for him. And so he wrote out these 95 theses that concerns that he had that he wanted to communicate to his church, and he posted that right on the door and or may have mailed it as well and said, this is what I want you, um, I want to talk about this. And little did he know that it became this um, one of and a very key component of this thing called the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And of course, his name is Martin Luther. And he was a very, very significant person in the Protestant Reformation. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about today, and we're going to talk about in the next two weeks. I mean, what are those main things that came out of that that really influenced us as a church today, Finding Life Church today, and, and many other Protestant churches? Um, because of that, there was some obvious friction between the church and Martin Luther, and so much so that they called him, they had councils at the time, and they called him to this a church council called the, the, uh, the Council of Worms, or Council, yeah, such an odd name, but there you go. Anyway, he was given, he was asked to give an account of why he was doing what he was doing, about his faith, and um, there was some debate, and he was ready to do all that, um, and he stood before the emperor of uh, the Holy Roman Empire, along with representatives of the Pope, and, and, and basically just nothing began to happen, and finally, they asked him to recount what um, he was proposing, what he was saying. And I want you to read um, or listen to this is what he said back to them. He says, unless 
I am convicted by scriptures and plain reason. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of holy scriptures, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. And then he says some very significant things. Here, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. I mean, that's kind of where we're at, right? What he's saying is he put a line in the sand and said, here I stand. Unless I'm being convicted by the scriptures, I mean, that's just where I'm going to go. And so that's the stance that he took, and, and the church wasn't willing to um, acquiesce to that. And so here you go, have this, this beginning of this movement of the Protestant Reformation. And so this month, you know, churches all across the country have been celebrating, or I'm not celebrating necessarily, but um, remembering these things that were part of the Reformation because of this 500-year anniversary of him posting uh, these 95 things on the door in Wittenberg, Germany. And so we're, we're going to talk about those things. And we're going to talk about what's commonly called the five solas, right? Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola uh, Fide, Sola Christus, and Solo De Gloria. And really what that means basically is this, that it's going to be um, Scripture alone. It's going to be grace alone. It's going to be faith alone. Christ alone. And then it's for God's glory. I wish I could write better. Man, when I invited everyone to talk back, <laughs> thank you. I'll work on it. I'll work on it. Anybody have good penmanship they want to help me out? Um, so this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about these five solas. And, and today, we're going to talk specifically about this one here. Um, this whole idea of Scripture alone and what that means for us and really what that meant for, for why he made that line in the stand and said, here I stand, um, Martin Luther did, and then so many um, uh, main figures in the church made that stance as well, and it's where we land as a church here. And so the, Pro the Protestant Reformation marked this a dramatic shift um, in medieval theology this, um, by emphasizing this foundational idea of Scripture alone. Um, there were so many abuses that were prevailing in, in the church at Rome, and when uh, the Reformers, right, their declaration of that the authority of the Bible was beginning to mark them, that there was such a sharp divergence, right, from the teachings of the church at the time during, um, and then what they were saying. And so for us, and what they meant when we say Scripture alone, is that the Bible is our highest authority. The Bible is our highest authority, and no tradition or no um, uh, um, church figure, their opinion 
weighs more than God's word. And so no longer could the officials in the church or corrupt church leaders create their own rules and regulations um, over a congregation that because they couldn't read it for themselves became ignorant and, and, then, and, and because they had no access to the Holy word, word of God, no longer could they push that on them and say, this is what we're to do as a church, right? What the reformers were saying, no, that's not where we're going to stand. It's not what I'm reading in Scripture. It's Scripture alone because that becomes our final authority. And here, here's what I hope to get to this morning is this, is that the Bible is our, right, our final authority above any other traditions. And don't let yourself believe that that was just a problem that was happening in um, the 14 and 1500s. I think that continues to stress and put, and, and we struggle with that as a church that if we're not careful and if we don't understand this whole idea of Scripture alone, that the, this, these traditions and, and even teachings, whether they're um, something that you've been brought up with or something that you've heard someone else say, that those things can become higher, right, than, than the Bible. And what we're saying is that, no, the Bible is our final authority, and it's above traditions, it's above our teachings in matters of faith and conduct. And so that's what I hope to get to today, for us, for you to settle in your heart that that's where you are at. And so the ultimate guide in my life and in your life, whether it's preaching, whether it's theology, whether it's leadership, us as elders, different um, positions in the church, uh, in your home, or just the general practices within Finding Life Church and any other church. Um, and, and, and then not only that, but this the daily life of, of me, the daily life of you, that the, our ultimate guide is the Bible. And then... Secondly, is this, is that it is our personal responsibility to know what it says. I think maybe we can agree with that first one, but this one is hard for us, right? It's hard for us. We tend to come to this saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in our life, and in essence, we're not in essence, we are radically changed from what we were before. And this beautiful thing happened, this moment in our life, or a series of moments, or whatever it might be. And you finally realize that you're an adopted son, adopted daughter, and all these identities of who you are. And God used many, many things to get you there. And then we just kind of go. And we don't. Um, we don't get into his word, what he has revealed to us about who he is and about his son Jesus and all this kind of stuff about how to live our life. And, and we just begin to coast. And so I want us to get to a point where it is we understand and we are convicted and we believe that it is our personal responsibility to know what the Bible says about who God is, about what he's done, about who we are 
and then from that, what we are to do. Second Peter 3, 14 through 18 says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave you. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. But, and here's a good phrase for you to remember, grow, grow, grow. In the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And so we are, right, encouraged strongly to grow in the grace that we have been received, to grow in the knowledge of our Heavenly Father and our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that, right, all these things that he said above don't come true in your life. And so it's our responsibility, right, to be trained, to be corrected by the message of God um, as he writes it in the Bible so that we don't, right, fall from our own steadfastness. Look at, look at this passage in 2 Timothy. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life. This is Paul talking about as they were thinking about his life. And all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, what kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconic, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, and I think, I hope, I pray, that is you, right? When, when you came to know Christ, there was a reason why that happened, right? And so it would stand to reason that you do want to live a godly life in Christ. And so if that's true, then what comes next after that is important, right? That should be a thing. All right, that, that should be a phrase that you would look at and you go, all right, so I need to know what then, if I want to live a godly life, godly life what that looks like in my life. And so um, here he goes. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ, you need to know you're going to be persecuted. It may look differently, obviously, from what Paul happened to him, but there's going to be some kind of thing that's going to happen if you are truly living your life for Christ. Then he says, while evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, um, continue, great word, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. And so there is this idea that... Um, Whoops. There's idea that you're continuing in it. There's idea that you have learned something, and then not only that, but you have become convinced of. You've become convinced of. You've tasted and you've seen. Um, you've, you've been transformed, right, from what you were before to what you are now. And so you become convinced of that. So continue in that. Persevere in that. Because you know those from whom you have learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then this verse that 
we know well. All Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is God-breathed and is useful. And here's these four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God, which is you, which is me, may be thoroughly equipped. We need to be equipped for every good work. Why? So that John 13, 34, and 35 can come to fruition and that the world is going to know that you are my disciples by how you love one another and how you love me. And so we need to be equipped. It's not something that just happens, boom, and we are like Jesus. We need to be equipped in that. And so scripture is a big, big part of being equipped. Okay. Um, I read this article and this past week from, um, I went to Dallas uh, Seminary in, in Texas, and um, the president there wrote this little article about the Reformation. And I want you just to listen to what he had to say about um, how this is relevant to our present-day culture right now. The responsibility that Christians have to stake out a claim for the cause of Christ in today's culture is critical. You see, we are witnessing a moment in history when Christianity that was once respected, that was once or was once respected and then tolerated, is now under suspicion and even attacked. I mean, it's interesting. Um, my wife can attest to this. Sometimes I like to listen to music that, that's, that's not Christian. And um, when I was working in my basement, I just, on Spotify, I just picked this thing that says New Music Friday. And you never know what you're going to get. But I was amazed by... Um, I don't like the songs, but I was amazed by the words and the verbiage that was um, in the songs, and it was um, a total, um, man, just, <laughs> it, it, it pertained to the Bible, it pertained to um, Jesus, it pertained to Christians, but it was everything that, this is stupid, it's failed, and, and, and everything else, and just song after song after song, uh, so I agree with him when he says it's under suspicion and it's even attacked. Important, he goes on, important biblical issues have split the populace of values of life and love on one side and values of justice and compassion on the other. Um, in his latest book, Impossible People, Os Guinness describes it like this. It is surely undeniable, so that's a quote within a quote, <laughs> it is surely undeniable that only rarely in Christian history has the lordship of Jesus in the West been treated as more pliable or has Christian revisionism been more brazen. Christian interpretations of the Bible more self-serving, Christian preaching more soft, Christian behavior more lax, Christian compromise more common, Christian defections from the faith more casually, and Christian rationales for such slippage more suspicious and shameless." End quote for that particular one. Um, Dr. Bailey goes on. And he goes, if you're like me, you're finding yourself wrestling today, trying to develop biblical convictions and courage while continuing to demonstrate biblical compassion. That, that's what we struggle with, right? We, we know that scripture is God-breathed and it has these things that it's very clear on. 
but yet we're struggling with that. How do we do that? Speaking the truth, the gospel of good in love, but yet have this compassion, this grace. What does that actually look like? And we struggle with that. Our Lord, he goes, our Lord also lived during tumultuous times. He was courageous to stand convicted, never compromising truth, but incredibly compassionate toward those who just didn't yet understand. His life teaches us to do the same, to have the courage to take a stand with the conviction of scriptures and the courage to develop a heart of compassion. And so the Bible, because that's where we learn about our Savior, is going to occupy a very central place in our life. And if that is true, if the Bible is going to occupy a very central place in my life and in your life, then it would stand to reason, right, that then the church, that Finding Life Church, that it should occupy a very central place in who we are as a church body and what we do. Um, Martin Luther, it's here we stand. The Bible is going to be our final authority. And so it's my prayer, and I pray that it's your prayer, that each follower of Christ, each Christian, is going to treat God's word as true, as authoritative, and as sufficient to live the life of faith. Let me just say it again, true. And I'm going to have to look how to spell this. Authoritative, don't laugh. Authoritative and then sufficient. Right? That it's true, that it's authoritative, that it's sufficient um, to live my life, your life of faith. And just very simply, right, we um, believe that the Bible is true and we just simply believe that the Bible is where we're going to make our stand with um, we maintain um, unity on the important and primary and core issues of theology. I say that also to say that we're not going to get weighted down by secondary matters in our faith. And so while we highly value theology, while we highly value doctrine, and, and believe that the content and faith is extremely important. I want you to know that we also are going to aim to keep it simple as best we can without being simplistic. I think we can get caught up, <clears throat> we get caught up in, in the um, complexity of all of this and we begin to lose sight of why we're doing what we're doing. Because really, it's very simply all about Jesus Christ. We want you to know Jesus. We want you to also study theology, but we want you to know him. I mean, get as much training as you can. Go even beyond the basics of our faith um, so that you can able to speak intelligently to people as they ask you questions. But I want you to keep a very close Loyalty to Christ in your life. 
Because there's many things that we're going to disagree on, particularly when it comes to theology, these secondary issues. But as long as it's not a disagreement about these main core um, historical, biblical, orthodoxy type issues, um, I think we're just going to agree to disagree on some of those, not the core ones, but the secondary ones, and then be united in these essentials, right? And so for the purpose, and why do we do that? It's because the purpose is to, the Bible in our life, the purpose is not to read from Genesis to Revelation. I mean, I've had so many conversations with different people in previous churches that have said, well, I've read my Bible from front to back, and then I can have in that same conversation, well, I've read the Bible from front to back three times this year, and I'm going, that's awesome. And then in that same conversation, we're sitting in the parking lot of the church, and they're going, well, Kevin, why, why does the church grow? Why is this church growing? I like it under, I don't want it to go beyond 200. I like it right where it's at. I'm going, How, are you reading the same Bible that I'm reading? I mean, it just, the knowledge is there, but it hasn't made that connection from here to his heart. And that's just not where we want to go. I want you to know that this idea of Scripture alone does not promise nor does it deliver an infallible church. History bears that out. But what it does do is it challenges an imperfect people, which you and I are, to, to um, link themselves to a very perfect word about a very perfect Savior. Listen to John 5.39. It says, You search for Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But I want you to know that it is they, meaning the scriptures, that bear witness about me. And so a Bible is the means to knowing God. The Bible is a means to knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. And albeit a final and authoritative and perfect means, but it's a means nonetheless. And sometimes we can... Um, get so enamored with that that we begin to elevate the Bible above Jesus. And that is dangerous. When, um, when we appeal to God to reform his church, right, through the word of Jesus Christ, through the Bible and by the power of his spirit, I mean, history will bear this out, that when we do that, when we're pliable and we're open, that, um, that it's going to begin to correct these deviances that, are, that we have with um, what we know to be true in God's word. This idea of scripture alone um, well, is going to take us back to the source, which is the Bible. And it's going to break through all these... Um, things that we deviate from, and it's going to expose us back again to the power of the gospel, what it was meant to be. And it's going to rejuvenate us to, to again, go back to the simple idea of, uh, of the gospel and what it means in life and the change that it takes. And it's going to place the church back again on the path that it goes. I mean, if you look at history and, and what has happened through history, you'll see this. I mean, that was true in the pre-Constantine centuries. It was true in the medieval monasteries. It was true in the 13th century of Thomas Aquinas. 
And it was true in the Protestant Reformation that we just got done talking about. And it's my hope and my prayer that this idea of Scripture alone, that if it's going to survive and if it's going to flourish, and we're going to really sink our teeth into this idea of the Bible alone, what we're hoping is that it will begin to open up um, this way of salvation, right? This way of salvation to, to people who need him. And I pray that you pray that, that it's not just about reading our Bible, but it's about um, exposing that to many, many people so that those that don't know Christ and that they're in need of a Savior can um, get to know him and God can use that to transform their life to become an adopted son, to become an adopted daughter. Here's the thing. Everybody orients their life around something. Regardless of your state of faith, regardless of who you are, whatever it is, you're going to orient your life around something. I mean, everybody does, right? And so the, the question is, is what do you orient your life around? I mean, are you orient, oriented around something else or are you oriented around the Bible? And, and ultimately what it boils down to is something that you trust, that you trust. And so as followers of Christ, right, it would stand to reason that we would orient our life around the Bible, all 66 books, the Old Testament, the New Testament, because we trust. Well, why do we trust it? I'm just going to just go, go through this really quickly, but there's some good reasons why we trust this manuscript, these 66 books, textual consistency. I mean, it's accurate to the original as best we can tell, right? 50 years of time span from the original to all the thousands of manuscripts that we have. The next closest ancient document that we have is Homer's Iliad, and and there's 400 years gap. And so there's that, right? Um, It makes the Bible stand heads heads and... high above all ancient documents. Secondly, historical reliability. I mean, there's numerous archaeological finds that um, confirm the accuracy of the Bible and what it says. And so that would, lend us, that would lend us to say that we need to take it very, very seriously. I mean, think about this. The harmonious continuity of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a 1,500-year time span 40 different authors, three different languages, um, over three different continents, yet one continuous, harmonious story making much about Jesus Christ. I mean, it just makes it like no other book that we have in our possession today. Okay, not only that, but prophetic accuracy. I mean, most of you probably know this, but again, I was amazed again by this. Over 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ fulfilling that in the New Testament, right? Josh McDowell talks about that, um, the prob- about the probability of one person could random- randomly fulfill just eight, eight of these prophecies. And what would that look like? And so he said, here's a, a statistician calculated the number, and it was one um, to the 10th power followed by 17 zeros. I don't even know what that number is, but it's a lot. Um, and so he, he tempt, attempted to illustrate this for us. And I don't know if this is accurate or not, but this is what he came up with. 
So it would be like if we took the state of Texas, which is very, very large, and we would put silver dollars two feet high. We would stack them two feet high, all in the state of Texas. And within that, you would find one silver dollar, and you would put an X on that, and you would just throw it in there somewhere. And then you would take a person and blindfold them, and you would let them wander around all these coins. I don't know how you would do that, but you, you would do it. And you'd wander around for a couple of years, and then you would tell them to find an, or pick up a quarter. And so the probability of that person picking up a quarter that had the X on it is the same probability of someone randomly fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. I mean, that to me is just incredible. Not only did he fill eight of them, he fulfilled all 300. I mean, that should just blow your mind right now. And so we have textual consistency, historical reliability, harmonious continuity, prophetic accuracy, and then we come to this idea that the experiential part of it, where I encounter God's word and all the truth that is there, and then by faith I say yes to it. I mean, the Bible even talks about itself as God's word. First uh, Thessalonians 2.13 talks about that, um, oh man, I'm going way over. Okay, we'll skip all that. Bottom line is this. We'll just get to the bottom line. Here we go. Second Timothy 3, 10 through 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting. My pen doesn't work anymore. Um, what we mean by teaching, these are some questions that you can ask yourself as you're reading God's word. Is what does this tell me about who God is? What had God done? Who are we in light of what God has done, and how would we live if we believe this? When we think about rebuking, um, it says, where am I not living by faith, believing who God is, trusting in his work, and resting in my new identity? My behavior will reveal my beliefs. Does my behavior show I believe God's word and want to obey him? If not, what does my behavior reveal I believe about God, his work, and my identity? Correction. If my behavior reflects my beliefs, how does God's word correct my ignorance or wrong beliefs? What truths didn't I know, and how? And, and does that change my view of God, his work, and my identity? What lies about God had I believed, and how does this text correct that? What would my life and behavior look like if I believed and submitted to God's word? And then the last one is training in righteousness. And then we begin to respond in three ways. Repent, believe, and obey. Righteousness is living the life of God rescued and freed us to live. What actions and behaviors would I engage in if I believed these truths? When and how will I begin to walk out the fruit of repentance through obedience? And so bottom line is this, is how do I respond? How do I respond to this idea of Scripture alone? Is that we need to begin to read it. We need to begin to read it, immerse ourselves in this, to understand who our God is, who Jesus Christ is, so that we can begin to then believe um, not only that Jesus is our Savior, that he's our Lord, but all these truths that are true about who he is and about who I am and what he's done. And then from that, right, we begin to live our life. And so 
we, uh, we read it, we believe it, we submit to it. That's another key component to that, component to that. And then with God's help, with God's help, and we forget that phrase sometimes, we then obey it. So here's our next step, just one next step, and that is to get into God's word. It's a very simple, very simple next step, but that is the next step that I would love for you to begin to dive into this week. For me, for me, I, um, I need help in my Bible reading. I mean, I, I get plenty of reading the Bible when I study, but just for my personal time, I need help. And so I use the YouVersion app, um, and, and what it does is I use different plans, and presently right now I am reading, I'm going through the New Testament um, in a year. And, and it just takes me one chapter a day, and I just get to read that. But it lets me know if I skip a day that, all right, you've skipped a day, and I need to go back and catch up. But it's just a great, great thing. So I encourage you, whatever that looks like, you know, find the app, download a plan, um, and, and don't feel guilty, uh, but do it because you want to learn more about who our Savior is and that kind of thing. If you don't know where to begin, begin with one of the Gospels and just let that um, sink in your life. Um, and then as we worship one more song, I would just say that if you want to learn more about how to study the Bible, I've got a great resource for you that I would love to email to you, and it gives you some great tools to be able to do that. Um, so let's get into God's Word, okay? Let's worship together.